Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this 16th episode of A Grand Tour with My Great Great Granddad. My name's Ed Hill and this podcast is based on the journals written by my great great grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, about his travels around Europe and later Mexico, specifically Mexico, written in the 1840s. It's available on all podcast platforms, so if you just Google it, you should find it. Any of the well-known platforms, and it's also on YouTube as well, although um, it's not the most visually exciting thing on YouTube, but as I record it, when uh, it's hosted on the Acast platform, they automatically make a YouTube version of it. So, um, And actually, hopefully later on, I do hope to do a bit of video content, so hopefully that will get posted onto my YouTube channel and... Um, you can watch that there as well, along with the episodes, or listen to the episodes, and watch a little wavy line, reflecting my voice going up and down, um, because that's about all you see on the videos of the podcasts. Also, if you want to make contact with me, you can through Twitter. There's a Twitter account called Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number three, 3G Grand Tour. There's also a Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And there's a Mastodon account as well, GG Grand Tour, and that's at scotted at universadon.com. There's also a Patreon account as well, but to be honest, I'm not really getting to grips with Patreon very well. I don't find the uh, interface, as they say, very intuitive, but you can find it on there and post about it on there. And it's linked to the podcast. Um, so, so if you did want to donate some money, it would be greatly appreciated, just in the sense of maybe helping to cover some of the running costs of doing the podcast, which is essentially paying for the Acast hosting, really. But uh, yeah, if you ever if you ever get faint and think, I'm enjoying this so much, I will in some way contribute financially towards it then uh, you can do it through Patreon. And actually, you can also do it through the Acast thing as well. As you'll hear quite often, there's a thing saying, if you click on the show description, you can make a donation, which you can do at any time, and that doesn't have to be like an ongoing thing, which it does with Patreon. So, But I think you have to do that when you listen to it through the Acast player or website. I don't think, although it plays that message at the beginning of, if you hear it on iTunes or whatever, I don't think you can actually contribute. But anyway... If you do want to in any way contribute financially, <laughs> it'd be greatly appreciated. Right, now, what was I going on to say? Oh, yes, this is it. I wanted to say a couple of things about previous episodes because I've had a little bit of feedback from people about them. The first one is about episode 13. And um, I, if you remember that episode, by the way, 
if you're coming to this podcast for the first time all the episodes are there so and there's also an introduction episode which sort of is a, a shorter one which um, tells you about how the journals have been passed down my family and how i've prepared them for this podcast so you may want to listen to that just to get a bit of background about how they came to be ready for the podcast so anyway yes getting back to episode 13 williams at the egyptian museum in turin uh, which is still there today and there's still a big big tourist attraction and I said something about, he talks about this statue of Ozymandias in the courtyard there. And he says it's 15 feet high and it weighs so many thousand pounds. And I said, I can't see any pictures of this statue. And also I was a bit confused about Ozymandias, who he was compared to some of the other names on the statues that William's looking at. And a friend of mine's son, who obviously knows Egyptian history much better than I do, said that actually Ozymandias and Ramesses II, who I talk about as being these sort of great Egyptian kings, basically it's the same person. So when I say, oh, I'm a bit confused about which statue he's looking at, and it's probably the case that it's Ramesses and Ozymandias being the one and the same person. So, I don't know, maybe the label next to the statue in the 1840s said Ozymandias, and now it's been changed to Ramesses II. I suppose that could be the case, couldn't it? And actually, there is a tall one there that could well be the one that William's referring to, because it does look about 15 feet high. So maybe that's one that he's looking at, but maybe it isn't Ozymandias or Ramesses II. Because, um, <laughs> to be honest, a lot of these Egyptian statues of the various pharaohs look quite similar <laughs> from one to the other. So thank you for enlightening me on that. I now know that Ozymandias and Ramesses II are the same person. I think Ozymandias is a bit better name, though, don't you? Much grander sounding. I think it's called the Great Ozymandias as well. So, you know, you're not second or third or fourth or fifth. As you go down the numbers, a little bit less impressive, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's why Henry VIII had such a bee in his bonnet. It was a huge feeling of inadequacy there because he was the eighth one. There's a song now. Oh, I'm really the eighth. I am. I am. Anyway, <clears throat> I digress. The other thing that someone corrected me on, or pointed out to me, I should say, was in episode 14, I was discussing this whole thing about the shaving bowls that the barber puts around William's neck when he's being shaved in this barber's shop in Milan, and the fact that it's got this sort of notch cut out of the brim that goes around the person's neck. And of course I did know this, but I'd kind of completely forgotten it or passed my mind thinking about it. But of course the most famous representation of that type of bowl is of course Don Quixote because he has this helmet on his head, which actually isn't a helmet, it's a shaving bowl with the notch bit missing from the brim. So whenever you see pictures of Don Quixote in Cervantes' novel, you'll often see him wearing this helmet with the notch missing so really that's the most famous example of those types of bowls that you can think of actually in the story it's uh, referred to as um, the golden helmet of mambrino and in the story don quixote of course he's sort of deluded about his ability as a knight anyway the story is he sees this barber who's actually sheltering from the rain and so he puts this shaving bowl on his head you know to keep his head dry and don quixote sees it and I suppose it's maybe a brass or copper one, and it's shiny anyway, and he thinks it's the, the golden helmet of Mambrino, who Mambrino is a kind of uh, chivalry hero, not a real person, but a giant, 
in chivalric stories who wears this helmet that makes him invincible. So Don Quixote spies this shaving bowl, puts it on his head, thinking it will some way give him invincibility. So anyway, thank you to the person who pointed that out to me, because, of course, you see those images quite often of Don Quixote wearing this strange hat with the bit missing, or helmet with the bit missing, and that's, of course, what it is, a barber's metal shaving bowl. i kind of forgotten to make the connection between the two in this story. And then apparently in the musical The Man from La Mancha, which is, uh, well, there's a film of it in 1972, but it was a stage musical anyway, in the film, which has Peter O'Toole playing Don Quixote in 1972. He sings this big song all about the, the helmet of Mambrino. And there's a whole bit, you can go on YouTube actually if you see it. And he's singing it, although he's not singing it because Peter O'Toole couldn't sing very well. So the guy who actually sings it is a guy called Simon Gilbert who was a proper opera singer funnily enough and now it's time for a boring theatrical anecdote I did actually meet Peter O'Toole when I <laughs> when I was studying theatre and I had to do did a sort of work experience thing in the London theatre and at the time he was playing the role of Geoffrey Bernard in the play Geoffrey Bernard is unwell. I think anyway, he was the star in it and um, I think the years of drink had taken their toll by that time. He certainly wouldn't have been able to sing very well by then. But to be fair, he did say his voice was sounded like cola bottles being crushed or something. His singing voice. His speaking voice, of course, was uh, mellifluous. Right, so it's time to get on now. What I've done for this episode, it's the beginning of William taking a tour of Milan. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, Milan has these walls around it. It's historically had these various walls, started off with Roman walls, then medieval walls, and then later time of the 1600s, what were called the Spanish walls. And they're these entrances into the city, and there were the gates at these various points in the wall. And these had been rebuilt during Napoleonic times to be sort of grander entrances to the city at that time. So in this episode, basically, it's a bit like in Paris when William was going from bridge to bridge across the Seine. In this episode, he's sort of going from gate to gate and then describing them. So that is basically what I've done. And this whole episode is dedicated to the various gates. Not all of them are there now anymore. I mean, you can imagine it's 180 years since William was there. So I'd say about half of them are still there, maybe a third. And also, as I'll discuss, they're often also referred to as areas of Milan as well. So the gates is also kind of like an area or a neighbourhood of Milan. So William's going to begin at the Porta Orientale. Then he basically goes on walking around and then describing various gates and what i've done in this episode as he's sort of going around after each gate or each couple of gates i then do a little bit of explanation about them i hope it's not too much of me waffling on maybe it is but i hope you enjoy hearing about the history of them actually to be honest william doesn't go into a huge amount of history and i don't go into it too much either so hopefully <laughs> you won't get fed up it seems the only way to do it and then the next episodes will be his further time spent in Milan looking at the various sites as I mentioned in the previous episode he's got this three-week period where he's got to Milan 
but the engines that are being exported from Britain to run on the railway haven't arrived yet so he's got a bit of time to kill and so he does a lot of sightseeing okay let's start off with the first one the Porta Oriental Porta Orientale is a most magnificent structure built by Eugène de Bahanier, Napoleon's stepson, at the command of the Emperor Napoleon, and is of white granite and richly ornamented with statues of marble the size of life and numbers of basso reliefs, executed in the first style of art. The gates are of iron and of very excellent workmanship, and some well-designed and handsome lamps are fixed over the plasters. This porte, or gate, differs from all the rest, as there is no arch across the roadway, but the buildings are on each side, consisting of a basement and attic story, the lower ones being surrounded by a covered colonnade, and the buildings contain apartments for both the custom house officer and the police, the former to levy the duties upon all goods and provisions, wine, etc., brought either from foreign countries and the immediate neighbourhood and the latter to examine the passports of all strangers entering or departing from the city. The right building is devoted to the Department of Finance, and the left to the police and soldiers on guard. Right, so this is the first of these explanations about the various gates that William is describing. So the Porta Orientale, which he calls it, is now generally referred to as the Porta Venezia, and... It was also known as the Porta Renza for various periods of time as well. The naming of it as a arch is a bit unclear because Porta Orientale means Eastern Gate, but some people say this wasn't the normal naming practice in Milan to name gates after a direction. It was more where they were leading to or coming from. And so some people think it's Venezia or the name Porta Renza is kind of a shortening of Venezia. Anyway, it's called Porta Venezia today. It's a little bit unusual as a gate or triumphal arch because it isn't actually an arch like the Arc de Triomphe or something like that. It's actually two big buildings side by side that are quite grand through which the people enter the city. And I've seen a painting of it, 1838, so not... It was actually finished in 1828, so not that long before William's there. There's this painting of it in 1838 where, in fact, they've suspended between the two buildings a rather grand canopy that spans between the two buildings to kind of make it more like an arch and very brightly coloured, royal-looking regal decoration on this canopy. And then there's posh carriages coming in with lots of soldiers. I think the ceremony is described as something like some important Austrian aristocrat being given the keys of the city or something like that. Anyway, it's a big procession where all these soldiers are coming in on horseback through this gate and it's got this big canopy. I suppose it's kind of a mixture of wood and cloth canopy suspended between the two buildings. But it was actually designed by Luigi Cagnola. He did various other gates around this time round Milan. Milan at this period is undergoing a lot of renovation and restoration and architectural changes are being made, firstly from Napoleon's time in charge, and then subsequently the Austrian Empire's time in charge, and many of the things that Napoleon instigated are then continued to be completed. 
because Milan actually was the, the centre of Napoleon's idea of the Kingdom of Italy. So it becomes the capital, and so all these grand plans are made for these public buildings around the city. These days, as I explained, these areas, these gate areas, are often quarters as well, or neighbourhoods of Milan. So as Porta Venezia as an area as well, this is very much an LGBT area, so it's actually now renowned for being a sort of gay-friendly area. And also has a history of a lot of immigration from Africa as well. So it's sometimes referred to as Milan's Casbah or African area. So these days the likelihood is that you may well visit it as a place for those reasons. And with all these arches, as we'll go through, this was meant to be brief, but anyway, <laughs> I will honestly try and make them brief for each one. This was uh, quite an important gate in Milan at that time as a main entrance coming from Venice, I suppose. The Porte Nuovo is a splendid single arch of great elevation, built also by Napoleon. On the inner side is a small statue of the Emperor on the keystone of the arch, and on the opposite one, an allegorical female figure representing the kingdom of Lombardy. And there are also four of the most exquisitely executed female figures I ever saw in the Alto Relievio, representing fame and glory. These are also the size of life. On each side are buildings for the financiers and police, with covered porticos in front, over which there are other basso reliefs. This structure, though very small, has a very pleasing and chaste effect. The Porte Comacina is a grand and noble structure erected a few years ago at the sole expense of the merchants of Milan and dedicated to the Emperor Francis I. It is of white granite and consists of one lofty centre arch and two smaller arches with iron gates. The whole building is about 60 feet in height and at the four corners of the attic reclining gigantic statues each resting one arm upon an urn to represent the four principal rivers of Italy. I think I'll just briefly jump in here just to say when William uses the word attic here, it's in the sense of the Greek architectural feature. So it's actually a kind of decorated area above the entablature. So imagine, say, you've got columns or you've got an arch and at the top you have the entablature, which is the bit going across. And then on top of that is the attic, which was often a decorated bit, sometimes with bas-reliefs or other sculpted images. And also I just say here when he uses the term alto reliefs or alto reliefios, but I'm tending to say alto reliefs here to make it easier. It basically just means the sculptures that are high up, so high. Some of these may be bas reliefs, some of them may be just high up sculptures on the top of the, the arch or on top of the portico or the grand building. There are also similar buildings to the others for the financiers and police with open porticos and over them alto reliefs of the iron crown of the Lombards, a cock to represent the vigilance of the Austrian government, the scales of justice, military trophies, etc. This porte taken as a whole is a most majestic building. The Porte Teneglia is merely a low and plain arch leading to a thickly populated suburb. The road from this porte enters the great road to the Simplum, about three miles from the city. I'll just explain a little bit about these two arches. 
the Porte Nuovo and then the Porte Comacina. The Porte Nuovo, the gate is still there, but that whole district these days is very much a business district of Milan. So it's rather similar to the Canary Wharf area of London. In this case, it was uh, a rather abandoned and run-down bit of Milan where there were a lot of old railway lines. And so in the 1990s, they decided to reinvigorate it as an area and turn it into a business district, very much like they did in London with the docks and Canary Wharf. It does actually now have the tallest skyscraper in Italy, which is called the Unicredit Tower. But the original arch was designed by Giuseppe Zanino, who also did a bit of work on Milan Cathedral as well at the time. But um, there's really not a huge amount to say about it. It's still there. It's sort of a bit isolated, I suppose you'd say. As is the case with a lot of these gates that were built in the Napoleonic era, they're generally on the route of what was the Spanish walls and they were replacing what were old sort of entrances with these grander types of neoclassical arches. The Porte Comacina is now called the Porta Garibaldi. Again, it's still there. Now, William says that this gate was built with funding from the shopkeepers of Milan, which is true because um, basically as a project it was started uh, the architect Cagnola was meant to do it and then he stopped and they sort of put a hold on the project and then the Austrian government insisted that it be paid for by the Italian shopkeepers or merchants of Milan. And um, apparently on the original inscription it said something like this porto or this arch is dedicated to Francis I of Austria given by the shopkeepers of Milan. And then the date but then someone later added an additional thing which said, with little will. In fact, Francis I, he's also referred as Francis II rather confusingly sometimes, he only actually visited Milan a few times, so I imagine there was a certain amount of uh, resentment against him anyway, really. And actually this resentment in Italy grew as the Austrian rule of these areas of Italy continued and eventually led to the Five Days of Milan, which was an uprising and uh, beginning of the Italian Revolution and, uh, and then later Italian unification. And this gate was renamed the Porta Garibaldi, obviously after the great Italian hero who unified the country in 1870. And it's named that because uh, in one of the battles, I think it's in 1868, in which he was victorious, he entered the city through this gate. And so it was given that name. It was designed by Giacomo Miraglia, who seems to have been a very active architect around Milan at this time. He was involved in a lot of projects and restoration products at the city. It's a neoclassical arch this one is made of sandstone and over the years suffered quite badly from erosion so a lot of the reliefs and statues that William is observing weathered quite badly but it was restored a few years ago there was some restoration work done on it it would have been only about 10 years old I think when William would have been looking at it so it would have been in a much better condition <laughs> Thank you.
proceeding a short distance further, I found myself in an immense space of ground, of not less than one hundred acres in extent. One side of it, rearing its extensive walls and battlements, stood the ancient castle of Milan, and directly opposite to it was one of the most splendid triumphal arches I had ever beheld. This was the Arc de Simplon, or rather the Arch of Peace, as it is now termed. This is another of those works begun by that great man to whom Paris and Milan owe so much, but to which the Arc de Carousel at Paris is greatly inferior. This superb structure was commenced by Napoleon to commemorate the passage of the Alps, but it was not finished till some years after his abdication and death, and a great many of the sculptures have been changed or altered to suit the taste of the now dominant Austrian government. This great work was begun in the autumn of 1807 from the designs of the Chevalier and Marquis architect Cagnola, and he was also appointed to superintend its erection. The material is of the finest and purest marble, and the whole ensemble perfectly equal to the finest works of antiquity. In the year 1814, at the abdication of Napoleon, the building had been raised as high as the imposts, so the impost is like uh, the start of the arch. So imagine the side of the arch, you've got the vertical bits going up, and then it's just where the circular bit of the arch begins, really, or the, the semicircle of the arch begins. So that's the level of the impost. The building had been raised as high as the imposts of the small arches, but it was then destitute of any ornament, save the bas-reliefs at the bases of the columns. The exactness and delicacy with which it had been executed and the materials ready for its continuation, the gigantic columns cut in one single piece at an immense cost, the bronze works already prepared, and some of them cast at Manfredini's foundry at La Fontana. The Manfredini brothers was a, a foundry for casting bronzes and statues that was actually set up by Napoleon, so a lot of the bronze sculptures in Milan around this time were produced by this foundry run by the Manfredini brothers, so... You'll hear their names quite a few times, I think. In fact, the grandeur, beauty and novelty of the design, and the wish of the public to see it completed, induced the late Emperor Francis I, on his first visit to Milan in 1816, to comply with the universal wish and ordered it to be continued. And it was therefore agreed that it should be dedicated to him in remembrance of the general peace. Changing the designs of most of the basso-reliefs not then executed, and to keep up those that were thought equally fitted for its new designation. The style of this monument is of the Corinthian order of three arches, the centre one being larger in the span and of course higher, the vaulting richly panelled and filled with wreaths of flowers. On each side are eight columns of crevola marble. Crevola marble is a blue and greyish marble in colour. In one piece, the height of 34 feet 6 inches, and the full height of the building, 73 feet 4 inches, and 73 feet 4 inches in width. On the top of the attic is a bronze entablature, consisting of a chariot containing emblematical figures of peace in a standing posture, wearing a diadem, it's a crown. In her right hand is placed the olive branch, and her left holds a lance, at the top of which is a small statue of Minerva. The front of the carriage is ornamented with figures of victory, Ceres, the genius of arts and the portrait of the architect Cagnola, and at the back, two serpents, the device of the Visconti, the ancient dukes of Milan. The chariot is drawn by six horses abreast, 
12 feet in height, their attitudes and anatomical proportions are particularly fine. The design was the work of the talented Abandio San Giorgio, and the whole weight of the statue, car and horses is 25,733 English pounds. At each corner of the attic of the Archimplon is placed a bronze victory on horseback, on one hand of each bearing an olive crown and the other a palm branch. They were designed by Giovanni Putti of Bologna, and the whole were cast by the Manfredini brothers of Milan. Below the attic, and at the angles of the cornice, are four colossal figures emblematical of the rivers of Italy. The Ticino, in the form of an old man leaning upon a shell, crowned with seaweed, and offering a cornucopia filled with flowers and fruit. The Po, a man with an oar, the emblem of navigation, and horns on his head, to show the rapidity of its waters. These two are by Cacciatore. The river Adige, a man nearly in a laying posture, and pouring water from an urn. The Tagliamento, the figure also pouring water from an urn. This is an exceeding fine and animated piece of work. These last two are by Pompeo Marchese. The keystones of the arches are ornamented with heads. The two on the centre arch represent a female with a mural crown on her head, and in the soffits are two figures of victory. Venice, on the other, is also a female, silk balls and mulberry branches twisted in her hair in allusion to the riches of that province. In the soffits of these arches are two figures of fame. These are the works of Marchese also. The small arches contain astronomy, alluding to the observatory at the Palazzo di Biera by Camole, Ceres, she's the Roman goddess of agriculture, alluding to the fertility of the country, and crowned with a garland formed of ears of corn, again by Marchese. The goddess Pomona, with a garland of flowers and fruit round her head, by Pasquale. Imagination is another figure in allusion to the Academy of Fine Arts and Musical College, the theatres and museums, by Antonius Labas. The pedestals of the columns are panelled and contain fine basso reliefs of the purest white marble that it was possible to procure, Apollo leaning on his bow and his victim laying at his feet by Buzzi, Minerva by Bacchetti, Mars, the god of battles, by Bacchetti, Hercules, the god of strength, by Monti of Milan, Vigilance with a cock at her feet, by Pizzi, History by Aquisti, in Subria, a female with a mural crown on her head, and in her right hand a cornucopia of plenty, and her left some mathematical instruments. This figure was intended to represent the adjoining province of Lombardy, and was executed by Monti of Ravenna, and lastly the figure of poetry by Aquista. So I'm going to stop here with William's description of this arch, Arch de Simplon, or Arch de Sempione as it's known now. Basically, I think the thing to say about it is it's a highly decorative arch, absolutely covered in statues and bas-reliefs and um, various sculptural features. And this next bit, William's going on to describe some of the bas-reliefs. And uh, as he mentioned before, they continued building this arch after Napoleon had been defeated. And so a lot of the original plans for the bas release that would have shown more of Napoleon's great battles and uh, being crowned as king of uh, Italy or uh, his campaigns in Egypt or whatever, 
a lot of those bas reliefs were ditched and new ones were commissioned by the Austrian government and Emperor Francis I that are more in line with how they wanted to see history portrayed. So uh, there's various things. I think there's the creation of the Lombardy-Venetian kingdom in there. That there's some sort of depiction of that or some sort of allusion to that. There's uh, one of the... Um, the Congress of Vienna with the Duke of Wellington featuring in it because he was one of the people who was involved in the talks at the Congress of Vienna. So I could go into the detail of every one of these scenes that William then describes and then talks about the various artists who uh, made those works, but it would take a long time. So I, I just think it's a good point to stop here in this description of this particular triumphant arch. Obviously, there's so much on it that William probably spends quite a lot of time looking at it and I think it's very apparent he must have some sort of guidebook or some sort of reference book saying who all the artists were who were involved in these various sculptural elements that adorn it. And actually, if you look it up in Wikipedia, you'll say most of these artists that he mentions are correct, even if occasionally he sort of uses a middle name rather than a surname and things like that to refer to them. The Porto Sempione, as it's called now, is definitely a very grand arch and um, probably the most famous of the arches that we're discussing in Milan. I think it's quite interesting that uh, William actually says it's far superior to the Arc de Carousel, which is what he calls the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. I think it's smaller, but um, perhaps in terms of decoration and sculpture and so forth, maybe it is more interesting. Also, just to mention, William makes a very brief reference there to Milan Castle. That is actually what is termed Svorsa Castle, or Castello Svorska. Again, I'll have to get the Italian pronunciation right. It's a big building, and again, as I've mentioned before, it was built by the Visconti family, who were the dukes of the Milan area. And uh, the initial building of it began in 1358, but uh, obviously it was sort of added to and uh, changed and altered many, many times after that. Apparently it now houses several of the museums in Milan. Costello Sorfesco. Sorfesco. It's a very hard for an English person to say. It's got an S and an F next to each other. I can't say it very well. Costello Savosco. If you say it with an Italian accent, you can then sort of do it. But to just say it in a, with an English accent, it's Costello Costello Savosco. There Oh dear. Actually, I would describe it more as looking like a grand palace than a castle, really. It's only a very grand building. Wouldn't surprise me if William talks about it more later in the journals. But this whole area is in the very centre bit of Milan, and I think uh, this is a good point to move on to the other architectural features and uh, gates that William's talking about at this point. So he then discusses the two companion buildings that are often next to these arches because most of them were built as points where passports would be shown or taxes would be paid so most of these arches then have two additional buildings usually on either side for police or passport checkers and 
another side for paying duty on any goods that are entering the city, as was often the case at this time. There are also two fine buildings with open arcades towards the arch. They are in the Doric order of architecture and of the finest white granite. These buildings are devoted to finance and police. One of them is used as a custom house of deposit. The whole is surrounded by a handsome iron railing and everything connected with them is kept in the cleanest and most scrupulous order. The road leading from the arch runs in a perfectly straight line for three miles of very great width and planted with fine large trees. We now come to the Porte Verzellina. This is a very fine arch in the Ionic style of architecture with four columns and pilasters on each side, a noble cornice and entablature. It was erected by the Emperor Charlemagne, and like the Arc de Simplon, originally stood at a distance from the city, it being intended for a triumphal arch. So this arch actually no longer exists. It was demolished at the end of the, or later part of the 19th century. I have found a print of it, and it, I would say it looks quite like marble arch in London. Sort of similar style to that, I would say. So we'll move on to the next porte or gate. The Porte Tassinese is a noble structure commenced by Napoleon to commemorate the Battle of Lodi and finished by the Emperor Francis in 1815. It consists of a lofty pediment supported by columns of gigantic size. The foundations are sunk to an immense depth beneath the canal over which it stands. The police and custom houses are at a small distance on each side with iron gates and are neat and commodious, though plain edifices. Just on the outside is a large dock for barges, and there are also two navigable canals proceeding from it to the Ticino and Pavia, and another that descends from the Adda near Vaprio, or Vapriodiada, I suppose it's <laughs> Vapriodiada, about 30 miles from Milan, and after making a circuit of at least three-fourths of the old town, falls into it. So the, the Adda is a, another nearby river close to Milan. And then the area is called Vapriat de Arda. Quite a lot of the canals that William's mentioning here that were the moat and then became the canals of the Spanish walls then flow into the, the Adda River. A large and thickly populated suburb is situated also outside this gate and contains four or five churches. The traffic is also very great here on account of the canals and it being also the road to Pavia and Genoa. The Porte Ludovica is another gate. This is only a low and plain arch without any architectural pretensions whatsoever. The Porta Vigentina is another plain arch at a short distance on the outside of this gate. This is the place of execution for criminals. The Porta Romana is, with the exception of the ruins of the baths, of which I shall speak hereafter, all that is left of ancient Milan. This gate is undoubtedly of Roman origin, and like the Arc de Simplon and Porte Vercellina, originally stood at a distance from the city. It is of red granite, and the proportions of the columns, the cornices, and the entablature are worthy of those ancient masters of the world. In the buildings adjoining also are a number of Roman bricks, and though at present in a rather ruinous state, it looks glorious, even in decay. The Porta Tosa is the last, and it's only a plain arch, but a short time previous to my leaving Milan, preparations were commenced for building a new gate on the spot to communicate with the station of the railroad from Milan to Venice. Right, so we've kind of reached the end of these various 
porter or gate that uh, William's describing with these last four. I'll just talk a little bit about two of them. The porter Ticinesa looks quite different from the other ones that we've talked about because it really looks quite big. As William says, it's uh, on these massive columns and um, it really stands out as being much, much chunkier in construction than the other gates that William's mentioned so far. There are four, well, I think in total there's six. Eight! Very big columns that support the pediment and it's very tall as well, so it does look quite an impressive building. Again, it was all part of this redesigning of the walls and the gates, and it was built between 1801 and 1814. And again, it was designed by Luigi Cagnola, who we've heard before did some of the other gates and various prominent architectural things around Milan at this time. Apparently there's an inscription on the top of it that uh, is in Latin, which means um, to peace that frees peoples. It's... uh, Quite an impressive site. I suppose if you happen to be in that area of Milan, it certainly would be worth a stroll along to see. And again, quite a lot of these gates, and like this one, are close to the canals. And this one seems to have been particularly close. A bit hard to see on the map quite how close it is, but obviously at one time, I think probably more obvious than it is today, the canals and docks came closer. As William describes it, it doesn't seem to be that close to a river or canal these days. No doubt the area's probably been built up around it as time's gone by. Then there are these other porters or gates that he mentions, the Ludovica. Again, now it's an area of Milan, the gate, actual gate's gone, and the Porta Vigentina. He mentions it being the place of executions. I've tried to research a bit into that and I can't find any reference at all to it being the place of execution. No doubt it was, as someone told William at the time, but um, they haven't told the internet. (laughs) I'm sure someone would know. I'm sure some local Milan historian would be able to tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, The next one he mentions is the Porta Romana. Now that is still there. That's quite an interesting one because William says it's undoubtedly of Roman origin. And when you look at it, it's this arch that's stuck in the middle of a roundabout, as a lot of them seem to be these days. I must admit, when I saw the pictures as well, I thought, oh yeah, this is a Roman arch dating back to Roman times, because it just looks that old, really, and that weathered. And um, I can certainly understand why William would think so too. At least I think that's what he's saying, anyway. But it is very old. It was built in 1596 as part of the original Spanish walls when they were built. But it's not actually Roman. But it does look like an old Roman arch. And I think there was one we mentioned in one of the episodes before that is a genuine Roman arch. And the level of weathering on that arch just goes to show how well it preserved it was because the two look similar, although this one was built thousands of years later. But the Porta Romana air, I mean, there was originally a gate there and it was originally part of the Roman walls of Milan. But this actual gate there that's now rather isolated on this roundabout dates back to when they built what they call the Spanish walls of Milan and uh, dates back to the 1600s. That area is quite a posh area, or parts of it are quite posh in Milan. And at one time it had a reputation for a place where well-known Milanese or celebrities lived I mean, most of them are Italian, though. One I had heard of was Dario Fo, the playwright. If you ever know anything about the play Accidental Death of an Anarchist, that was written by Dario Fo, who was, uh, I think you would say, a a left-leaning playwright of uh, Italian theatre. 
Good play, though. It's funny. Right. Um, so that's it, really. Oh, oh, and he does last this this porter tozer at the end, and he's saying they're about to rebuild it for um, the railway line from Milan to Venice. I've seen a picture about 1880 where this arch has obviously been built and it's sort of in between sort of going over two platforms of what look like kind of railway buildings. I mean, it looks more like a tramway, I would say, than a railway line. But um, it's just a plain sort of arch, even when they rebuilt it. So that's really all the gates that Williams discussed here. As I say, probably about half of them, maybe, maybe a third, aren't there anymore. As I mentioned before, there was this raised promenade or embankment that followed the Spanish walls. By the time Williams there, the actual Spanish walls themselves had um, deteriorated, but they'd been rebuilt as this sort of embankment and walkway that went round large parts of this central part of Milan. William does mention some brick remains and arches uh, dating back to Roman times that are there. I think, again, this is near the Porta Romana. I think there's like brick arches built by the Romans and there looks to be like a fancy swimming pool or something next to it now. <laughs> no doubt the uh, moneyed of Milan. It's quite nice. Right? The moneyed of Milan <laughs> spend their leisure time in this uh, pool next to the Roman... I suppose you'd call it modern Roman baths. It's next to some Roman bricks. A modern Roman bath next to Roman bricks. Or brick arches. Anyway, so that's it for the gates of Milan. So I'm going to finish the episode here as we've got to the last gate, or porter. It seems a good place to finish. And then we can continue with William's wanderings around the rest of Milan in the next episode. In fact, there's quite a lot of wanderings. <laughs> so I think it may well take the next episode and the episode after that to get through Milan. I don't know. I'll have to judge it and see how we go. Anyway, that is it for this 16th episode i hope you've enjoyed it and uh, as i say if you want to make contact you can through those ways that i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast twitter and mastodon and facebook etc etc so do tune in again when you get the chance as usual if you have been thanks for listening mm-hmm.